0: All right, so you guys and ladies, if you want, there is a study guide where you can follow along. It is on that back table back there. It's got a green uh, banner up at the top simply saying, what is the Bible? And so you guys can use that. It will help you to follow along as we jump into the scripture tonight. So last week, last week we started this series, what is the Bible, and last week we uh, I did not get nearly as far as I wanted to. It's Andre's fault. Make no mistakes about that. The reason we didn't get as far as we needed to, Andre messed us up. But today, I promise Andre will not mess us up. All right. Today, we'll get a little bit further along. So we are going to be going into the second part of what is the Bible. and And let me just kind of throw out these things for you now. Everyone in here is going to need a Bible, by the way. If you do not have a Bible, uh, you can borrow one from us back there. We've got plenty of them in the room. So we make some bold claims about this book. Some very bold claims about it. Tell me one thing that is a bold claim about this Bible. What's a bold claim about it? It's God's Word. That might be the boldest claim of all. What else? It's a holy book, so it's different than any other book. That's a pretty big deal. What else? Is there a single lie in this book at all? Yeah, every single word in this book is worth listening to, right? Listen, listen I, I love to read. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I'm up every morning at like 4, all right? And the reason why I get up at four is so that I can study, so I can spend time in the Word of God, so that I can do stuff that I want to do, all right, before my children are up and before uh, my day gets rolling out. I get to study. I get to prepare lessons. Uh, and by the way, just, a, just a, a quick aside, this Sunday night we are starting our Home Bible Fellowship back at the Aldridge's. Woo, woo, woo. All right. And uh, we are going to be jumping into the book of Revelation. And guys, I'm not going to lie to you. I've studied the book of Revelation a lot of times, but I've done it personally. I've studied I have never taught the book of Revelation, and I am, I am very, very nervous. Not because I feel like the book of Revelation is just that hard, even though it is a difficult book. I think it's the hardest book in the Bible, but because... I really want you to see Jesus in the book of Revelation, and I don't want you to see Apache helicopters. Now, you might not get that, all right? And that's okay that you don't get that. I'm glad that you don't get that. But Mr. Brad, Mr. Joe, when I say that you can see Apache helicopters from the book of Revelation, have you ever heard that statement before? Yes. Is that what Revelation is about? If you listen to some people, they would definitely say yes. What were you saying, Joe? I was going to say, I heard something crazier than that about Revelation just today. You did? Did you hear something? You know what? Did it ha- I-, I heard something as well about that. It had something to do with the inauguration today. Is that right? Is that right? Yeah, there's a lot of, cra- when people talk about Revelation, they go into crazy town. They go into, into a nutsoid place But you have to see Jesus in Revelation. And I I don't want us to see anything but Jesus when we go into Revelation. So we make some bold claims about this. This is a completely true book. There's not a single lie in it. And maybe the biggest and most important and maybe the boldest claim that we make is that this Bible is God's Word, that God actually wrote it. Have you guys ever heard a description of how God writes things? Yeah. When he wrote the ten, Com- yeah, what do you? Yeah, when he wrote the Ten Commandments, it says he wrote in stone with his finger. So, is there somewhere in the world is there some sort of stone carving where the entire Bible has been written out by the finger of God? Is that what we're talking about when we say God wrote it? No, that's not what we're saying. So, what are we saying when we say that God wrote it? Was your was your hand up? Absolutely. He wrote it through men. In fact, that's the first point that you guys have to see on your study guide, okay? The first point is the Bible was written by God through men for the entire world. Now, when I say that it was written by God through men, what does that mean? That God told people. What were you going to say, Casey? um, they're calling God's prophets. God's prophets. So God would dictate what he wanted, and then they would write it down. Have you guys ever seen, uh, in some even older movies, you would see a person who would be a, a page or a squire sitting down, and the... Uh, the boss or the regal person would go around. He would say, uh, he would say, write down the words of the king. And as he would speak, the person would write down things. Have you ever, ever seen it where a boss would say to his secretary, take this down? And they would sit down and they would write it down. Have you ever seen that? Maybe uh, in a movie or um, anything like that. That's the idea there. But it's even it's even more, even more involved than that. In this way, think of it. Think of it like this. God used. The personality of each person who wrote, God used the experiences of every person who wrote to also also be a part of what was written down. That's why when you read a poem by David, you sit there like, wow, I hear the suffering in, in David's writing in his voice while he wrote this down, or man, the rejoicing is huge, or, or when you see Paul's letters and he eloquently will make... All these arguments, and he'll he'll start off with a beginning and he's got a middle and then he's got an end, and it's structured really well, and everything is 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 put together so beautifully. You're like, wow, that is a Paul letter that makes sense. And then when you get to Peter, and Peter's just like blah! You know, he's just like, here it is, and he throws it out there. You see his personality on the page as well. So God used men. To write it down. And we even see their personalities in it. And what a tremendous thing to know. That even in the word of God. Even in the word of God. God is pleased to use men for that. How many books are in the Bible? Does anyone know? Huh, Ava. 66 books in the Bible. That's right. 66 books of the Bible. Unless you're a Catholic. Uh, and if you're a Catholic. You're going to add six more. Huh? It. it it's, no, it's not 78, it's, it's 72. I, was, I had to sit there, I was like, huh? I was like, I was like this is not 70. Uh, but you got to add books to the Bible. How many years from Genesis to Revelation? Does anyone want to take a stab at that? Uh, combined, like, like a thousand. A thousand? Ten thousand. Ten thousand. Ten thousand? Ten thousand? Nine thousand. Two thousand? Huh? Three thousand. Ten it four thousand? No. Four thousand? Four We estimate, we estimate, we estimate about 1,500 years is what we estimate, about 1,500 years. How many authors? This is tough because we actually don't know an exact number. 32, 20 authors. So how many men did God use to write down? 30? 40? 47? Huh? I can't hear 27. 27. We actually don't know an exact number. We actually don't know an exact number. There are some books that we cannot be sure who wrote it. For example, Hebrews is a book that we're not exactly sure who wrote it. Um, But we estimate there's over 40 authors. Now, 66 books, over 40 authors, in the time span of... Around 1,500 years. The Bible is put together. And here's the thing, guys. You've got all these different personalities. You've got all of these situations. All of these circumstances. All these experiences that are going on in all of their lives. Over all this time. Over all these different subjects. And all these different ways of writing, you've got narrative, you've got epistles, you've got literature, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, wisdom literature, you've got uh, poetry, you've got all kinds of stuff. You've got prophecy. And in every single one of those books and authors, there is not one single contradiction in the entire Bible. There is not one single lie in all of it. And all of them are telling one story. Let me give you an illustration real quick, okay? So when we come to the Bible, we have to understand that it was God who wrote it, and God wrote it through men for the entire world, and God wrote it with one purpose. There is one story God is looking to tell. One story. So when we come to the Bible, who's... who's, Understanding the Bible, should we align ourselves with? Should we align ourselves with Moses's? No, not really. Should we align it with Paul? No, not really. Should we align it with Peter? No. Who should we align it with? With God. With God. Is that what you were going to say? We should align our idea with God. Let me give you an illustration. This one helps me understand how we come to studying the Bible, okay? And, and the purpose or the point of coming to study the Bible. Y'all ever heard of Robert Frost? Have y'all ever heard of him? Y'all ever read him in any of your high school or anything like that? Or have you had, I'm sure you've read in the collegiate area a good bit. Robert Frost wrote a ton of poems, okay? And there was one particular college student in a class who hated poetry. Couldn't stand it. As I'm sure, Brad, I'm sure you loved poetry when you were in school, didn't you. He had a disposition like grad's. He didn't care for poetry at all. And there was an assignment given to him that you are going to have to take a poem by Robert Frost. You're going to have to read the poem. You're going to have to write a paper about what the poem means. Okay, about what the poem means. So this student was beside himself. He didn't know what to do. He hated poetry. He took a Robert Frost poem and he read it. He was like, man, I don't even know... I have no idea, couldn't figure it out, couldn't understand the top from the bottom, but he came across this one book where Robert Frost printed up one of his poems, and not only did he print up one of his poems, Robert Frost himself also explained what the poem meant. So he thought, well, this is fantastic. This is wonderful. Not only do I have the poem right here, I've got the answer right here. So he goes, he takes the poem, he says, I'm writing it on this poem. And he goes and he says, and this is what it means. And he goes and he looks right at Robert Frost's stuff. He writes his own paper, but he says, this is what it means. And and I know for sure that that's what this poem is meant to say. He turns in the paper and the professor takes it and he reads it, and he gives back the paper, and the paper has an F on it. And the student looks at it, and he, hold on, what happened here? And he reads back through it, and he's like, yeah, this is, this is what Robert Frost said it meant. And he went back to his professor, and he said, hey, I, why did I get an F on this? You know, I, I, I did the work. I, picked the poem, I wrote down what it meant, I did the assignment, it's the right length and all this kind of stuff, I followed the, the formatting you wanted me to, what's wrong? And he said, well, you got the meaning wrong. He said, you, you completely missed the whole meaning of the poem. I said, no, I didn't. He said, I know what the poem meant, and this is what it meant right here. And he explained what the paper said, and the professor said, no, you're completely wrong. He says, trust me, professor, trust me. This is what the poem meant. And he says, how do you know that's what the poem meant? I mean, how do you know? And the student looks at him and he says, well, because Robert Frost himself said this is what the poem meant. Thinking that it's a drop the mic moment. Thinking that the professor is going to say, oh, I'm so sorry, let me turn that F into an A. You've got it right and all these kinds of things. Expecting that there's going to be a turnaround. But imagine his surprise... And the professor looked at him, and the professor said, Robert Frost got it wrong. Now, do y'all see the ridiculousness of that statement? Do y'all, do y'all grasp how wrong that professor was? Robert Frost was the author of the poem. Robert Frost wrote the story in the poem that he wanted to write, it had the meaning that he wanted it to have, and he explained the meaning. And for this professor to stand up there, for this professor to say, Robert Frost is wrong, makes the professor at the height of being incorrect. But so many times when we come to the Bible, when we look at this miraculous and this incredible Word of God, we come to it and we'll even say, yeah, God wrote it. But instead of looking for what God desires to share with us through the Bible, instead we come to it with a completely different and a wrong head, just like that professor. And we'll look at the Word of God and we'll say, that's wrong. That's not what it means. And then we'll try to figure out what it means except for what God intended. There are, I'm going to give you two really big terms here, okay? Two really big terms here. It's the next part of it, okay? And it's exegesis versus eisegesis. Exegesis versus eisegesis, okay? Now, exegesis and eisegesis are two ways to come to the Bible, You guys don't have to remember these words for the rest of your life, but you have to understand what's going on. There are two ways to come to the Bible. You can come to the Bible and you can practice exegesis, or you can come to the Bible and you can practice eisegesis, okay? Let me explain to you the difference of them, okay? To come to the Bible and to have exegesis is this, okay? You come to the Bible, you read it for what it is, for what it says, you look at the words that God wrote down, you look at the the men and the circumstances that went through, and you take the message that God had intended in there, and it exits, exegesis, it exits the page, and it impacts your life. You guys see that? Exegesis, the message, exits the Bible, impacts your life. It goes from here to here. Eisegesis comes to this Bible, and it says, okay, I see what it says. I'm reading these scriptures. I understand that these are the words that are here, but I have opinions, I have ideas, I have my own agenda, and I am going to interpret my life story right here. I will determine the meaning. You guys see the difference there? Exegesis from here to here. Eisegesis from here to here. That professor at the Robert Frost poem, Isegesis, was from here to here. Does that make sense? You guys see that? So one of the big things that always comes up, uh, one of the big isegetical statements is this idea that when we come to a sports um, analogy, this happens all the time, when you've got this great big, huge um, Team and this, this winning team, and they come up against this underdog ragtag team, uh, you hear a lot of times that it's a David versus Goliath kind of a scenario. Have you all ever heard that before? And Okay, let me tell you this right now. That's Isegesis. No, that underdog team is not David, and no, the big massive team is not Goliath. That's not what it means at all. I've got actually a video here matt chandler who is a, a, a preacher that i respect matt chandler uh, did a a, a a video where he says just simply you are not david and uh in the american gospel they come up there and they did uh this uh this they interviewed him about it and they showed different clips so i want you to play that video if it will play uh, i know we're in google slides so let's see if it'll work god is not a supporting actor in my life movie the Bible's not about you. I have been cast as a player in his unfolding story of redemption. And we've got that
1: reversed today. Here's what you You'll keep infusing yourself into the stories of the Bible like you're the hero. And so a way of reading the Bible that always makes man the hero and not an, the acts of God the hero. I, I think if you mess that up, then you're reading the Bible entirely wrong because the, the Bible wants to consistently get your eyes off of you and onto a God who is able. So it's not you that are able, it's God that's able. And, and so the, I think David and Goliath, you're right, it's just a perfect story for it. And anytime you hear the David and Goliath story, you're hearing about how you're David.
0: In order for David to become David, he needed Saul. Stop despising Saul. You need Saul. You need people to hate on you. You need the people to tear you up. Thank God for Saul because if you got a Saul, that makes you
1: David. I want to be straight. I love you enough to be straight. You're not David. So I'm David and the Goliath is my debt or it's my difficult marriage or it's my boss at work. We're
0: gonna keep our distance from our enemy and sling our stones until
1: every Goliath falls down in our life. I'm gonna grab the stone of faith and I'm gonna sling it at my giant and this boss at work and I'm gonna slay and I'm gonna hold up his head. You're gonna defeat that giant. Yes, that obstacle is big but you have greatness in you. And that would be a very narcissistic way to to read the Bible. But in a Christ-centered hermeneutic, we're gonna approach the Bible and go, what's going on in this very true story? Um, It it appears here that there's something that is terrifying and and that on the surface it looks like it cannot be killed. And yet it's overcome by this man who by faith, killed what couldn't be killed. And, and now we're to a thread, right? Like, like who, what's more undefeatable than sin and death? What David was doing was enacting the justice of God on the enemies of God for the victory and salvation of God's people who did absolutely nothing but be afraid and terrified to approach the enemies of God. You know who conquers our giants? Christ conquers our giants. It's not me that conquers my giants. Like the great giant of my life, sin and death cannot be conquered by me picking up a stone of faith and throwing it, but by the finished work of Christ who conquered death with a single shot.
0: All right, so does that make sense? Do y'all see the difference in, in the way that all these people were saying, you're the David and you can conquer your life's problems? And you can have victory over those things if you just throw your stones of faith. Do you guys see the difference between that and verses saying, no, 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 no. The Bible's telling one story and the story's not about you. You're not David. You're not the conqueror. You're not the victor. But there is a victor. There is a conqueror that the Bible is talking about. He's greater even than David. You guys see the difference. One is exegesis, where the message Impacts my life. The other is eisegesis. I've got a problem. I've got a difficulty. I've got something that I need to have handled and I need to find my answer here somewhere. I have to find my solution. You guys see the difference? If God wrote this book, then we need to exegete exegete the scripture to know what god intends eisegesis will never uh, uh, the study or the working of eisegesis will never clearly understand the bible you'll never get it you'll completely miss the one story of the bible all right so tonight we need to look very very quickly here just just that the bible is clear There is a clarity to the Bible. There is a clear and focused message of the Bible. In fact, the next point that I want to make is the Bible was written for everyone to understand its message. The Bible is clearly written, there is a clarity to the Bible. The Bible doesn't hide its message. The Bible doesn't lock it up and all of a sudden you've got to do all this crazy work to find it. In the 90s, I know even in the 80s, there was this movement uh, called um, uh, the code, the the Bible code. Do you all remember that, Brad? Do you all remember that, Joe? The Bible code, do you all remember that? And what they said is that you can figure out everything in your life. You can figure it all out if you unlock the Bible code. And then there was all these books written about the Bible code and how you had to go and you had to find the secret. No lie. You guys ever heard of Princess Diana? Y'all ever heard of that? All right, after the crash uh, uh, with Princess Diana and everything after she was killed in the car accident and everything, some guy sat up there and said, you know what? After that happened... I found that there was a warning about Princess Diana dying in a car accident when I unlocked the Bible code. And you just sat there and thought, what a weird and odd thing to think that the Bible was concerned with that, that it had to, that, that was a message you had to unlock and plot." No, no, the Bible's not written like that. The Bible's written for everyone to understand its message. It's got one message to tell, and it wants everyone to know it. Anyone who picks up the Bible, and anyone who reads it honestly, and anyone who will exegete, not eisegete, but exegete these words, they can get it. They understand it. And here are some things when, when you ask anyone on the street, anyone who has any understanding of the Bible, if you ask them, what is the Bible? teach what are the core teaching of the bible they'll tell you oh it's about god it's about um people mess up they sin they do wrong things it's about jesus uh it's about going to heaven immediately people know the core truths of the bible the bible's not written in such a way that it's hiding its message no it puts it right out there in the very beginning There is sin in the world. It is a problem, but there is a great God who sends a great Savior, who does a great work so that we can have a great reward in heaven and be with him. It doesn't hide the message. It puts it out there. So does that mean that the Bible is just a simple book? Well, No, it's certainly not simple. And there's a difference between being clear and being simple, okay? There's a big difference between being clear and... And being simple. The Bible's not a simple book. Think of it like this. In our Western mindset, I've showed you this example before. Our minds work best when we come to a book and when we read it, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And we see the line go all the way through. That's our Western mindset, okay? That is not what the Bible is. The Bible is an Eastern book, okay? And here's the way Eastern literature works, okay? You've got one central core idea, and that one is planted right there in the middle. And then you have all of these stories, and every single one of the stories around that central message all are pointing in to the one story, and so the story of David and Goliath, it's pointing right there. The story of Adam and Eve, it's pointing right there. The story of Moses with the Ten Commandments, pointing right there. Daniel the Lion's den pointing right there. All of these stories are pointing to the one central message. So it's not a simple book, but every single one of them is clearly making that point. So what is the central message? What was the Bible written about? It's very, very clear. The Bible was written about Jesus. And we've got some Bible verses that I need you guys to open up to. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Who wants that one? Logan. Who wants Revelation 1, 1 through 2? Uh, I, I saw your, and you get, you get Luke 24, uh, uh, 25 through 27. And there will be more passages uh, here in just a moment. Alright, whenever you're ready, go ahead and read Genesis three fourteen through fifteen for me. The Lord God said in the it, because you have done this curse, are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field? On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat in all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, because your offspring and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Alright, this is. The first time in the Bible when sin has shown up and we see that there is a story about Jesus coming, okay... You've got the serpent has come, deceived Adam and Eve, and you see that God comes and he enacts judgment on the man and the woman, on the serpent, and he sits there, and right before he moves on to Adam, he looks at Eve and he looks at the serpent, and he says, there will be a child coming. There is a baby coming one day who will be born of a woman, not of a man, but of a woman, and this woman will give birth to a serpent crusher who will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent will strike his heel, But the work of the servant will be undone. But in the process, the servant who came will be hurt. Do we know anyone who was hurt or who was killed even to crush sin and death? Yes, his name is Jesus. The Bible was written about Jesus. Well, Revelation 1, 1 and 2. who bears testimony to the Word of God and the testimony of who? Jesus Christ. The first book of the Bible you just read and we see Jesus clearly seen. And there at the last book of the Bible, what does it say the main point of it is? I am going to testify about the Word of God which is all about Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, it's all about Jesus. Luke 24, 25 to 27. Was that you, Casey? And he said to the Moses and all prophets, he interpreted to them in all scripture things concerning himself. Concerning he talked in all scripture things concerning who? Himself. himself. Jesus had just been killed. He had just been raised to life, and he's walking alongside these. These disciples of his who didn't know who he was. And they're sitting there saying Jesus is dead. Jesus is dead. But now we're hearing he's alive. We don't know what to think. And Jesus starts walking beside him, And Jesus starts talking with them. And they don't know who he is. And he says, how do you not understand that from the beginning, back when Moses was writing back in Genesis, all the way up to where we are now. And he walks them through all of the Old Testament up until where they are now. He says, it's testifying about him, Himself, Jesus. The Bible was written about Jesus. But if the Bible was written about Jesus, then that takes us to our next point. If the Bible is written about Him, then the Bible was not written about you. And that is a blow to so many people to hear. If the Bible's written about Jesus, it's not about you. You're not David. You're not Daniel. You're not Moses. No. Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the ultimate uh, law keeper. Jesus is ultimately the prophet who will carry us through to the end. Up to John. Someone open up to John chapter 5. Actually, let me do that one. Let me do that one. Let me do John chapter 5, verses 39 through 47. Because I want y'all to, to catch this. John chapter 5, verses 39. Or excuse me, verses 39 through 47, yeah. This is Jesus talking. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So the scripture bears witness about who? Me, about Jesus. It's not about you. It's about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from my, from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another man comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He's talking to all these Pharisees who sat there and thought that Moses was writing about them. Moses was writing about them. If they just kept the law, if they just kept the rules, if they just did what they were supposed to do, if they did it, if it was I who am able to accomplish this, I said Jesus. They brought their own opinion to it. If I can do this, then I'm good. And Jesus says, no, Moses himself is not talking about you. He's talking about Jesus, it's not about you. Back in 2010, there was a movie that came out called The Book of Eli, and I thought the movie was awesome. And in The Book of Eli, it's got Denzel Washington in it, and Denzel Washington is this post-apocalyptic thing. And uh, so there's been some sort of nuclear fallout or something like that. And Denzel Washington goes around, and he's having to fight all the time, and he's having to, uh, to, to scavenge his way through. And... He's carrying with him a book, a very, very important book, the only one of its kind left in the world. He's carrying a Bible. You find that out at the end. And every single night, he reads the Bible. This is in the movie, in the book of Eli. He reads the Bible. And you, like, they build up that this book is incredible, it's amazing, that it's, it's unlike anything else in the world. They build it up, and they make it huge, and they make it big, and I'm sitting there like, yes, this is great. Denzel Washington's character, Eli, he reads the Bible so much every night that by the end of the movie, he has the entire Bible memorized. The entire Bible memorized. And then there's this girl who uh, joins him on the, on the journey, and, and she asks him at the end of the movie, I mean, you've committed this entire book... To memory, you've memorized the entire Bible. What does it mean? And you sit there and you're like, yes, the most important book, this book of Eli, the one that he's been fighting for to save and to keep safe, the one that he's been reading every night, the one that has made such an impact on his life. What is that book about? And do you know what his answer is? He looks at, the, he looks at this, this, this girl. What is this book about? And he says, do more for others than you do for yourself. That's what I got out of it at least. That's his answer. No! It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And finally, very quickly, this message is clear. This message is not simple, but it's. It's not hidden. It's clear. It's out there in the open. But have you ever known someone who does read the Bible and they just don't get it? I knew a guy who, uh, man, he had more scripture memorized than, than anyone else I knew. And at the end of the day, he just he didn't understand it. Today, he's completely said, I don't believe anything about Jesus. I don't believe anything about uh, the Bible. I don't believe anything about God. He read the Bible. How did he not get it? Because of this last point, our understanding, even though the message is clear, our understanding is enlightened through the work of the Holy Spirit. There are atheists, there are scientists who hate the idea of God, Richard Dawkins being one of them. Richard Dawkins can quote the Bible, but he hates God. How is it? Because his understanding has not been enlightened through the work of the Holy Spirit. So real quick... I've got four Bible passages, Luke 8, 9 through 10, Casey, Ephesians 1, 16 through 18, Kaylee, 1 Corinthians 2, go for it, and do you want John fourteen 26? I'll get you, I won't have another one this time, but I'll get you next time. All right, so whenever you are there, read Luke 8, 9 through 10 for me. So Jesus had just moved from a time of his teaching where he's teaching just openly and honestly and explaining stuff to him, And then he starts moving into a time where he teaches in parables. And all of a sudden the disciples are like, hey, what's the point of going into these parables? And he says, because in these parables, you're going to understand it. You're going to see the truths of God. But no one else is going to get it because their eyes are blinded to the world. Because your eyes, your understanding is going to be enlightened through the Holy Spirit. Unless they trust in me, their eyes will not be. And that's true. Whenever you read the parables, a Christian who reads a parable is like, yes! And an unbeliever who reads a parable is like, what? That's still true today. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16 through 18. Who had that one? Saying that your eyes, or excuse me, your hearts have been enlightened to know what is the hope to which he has called you. When you're in Christ, when you're a believer, when you study the words, your heart is enlightened. And all of a sudden, you can't help but want to see Jesus. And you can't help but see Jesus when you look at the message of the scripture. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 12. Who had that one? When you look at what it says there in 1 Corinthians, you understand that the Spirit is the tutor, the Spirit is the teacher, and when we come to the Scriptures, we're not going to get it, we don't understand it because we don't have the Spirit of God, we're just man, we have a spirit of men, we have a spirit of wickedness that can be undone, can be put to death, and we can be made new in Christ but only through the Spirit, only when the Spirit of God works through us, all of a sudden our eyes are opened to the understanding. And finally, John chapter fourteen twenty six. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, when the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things to bring to, you to your birth. remembrance all that I have said to you. When the Holy Spirit comes, He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you, and that happens if you don't. If you don't believe that look at all the disciples when Jesus is here on the earth and like I don't I don't get it Jesus I don't understand I don't I don't know what's going on here and then all of a sudden when the spirit comes in the book of acts all of a sudden they're standing up there and they're like Oh my goodness, the entire Bible's about Jesus. And Peter goes into this sermon and he explains about how Jesus has been the message from the beginning. And then Stephen, who was the first martyr, goes in and he talks about how Jesus has been the message from the beginning. All of a sudden, they get it. Jesus is the message. It's not about you. And our understanding is enlightened through the work of the Holy Spirit. Guys, this is not just any book. This is the Word of God. It's not about you and it's not about me. It's about Jesus Himself. And my prayer for you, just like it's my prayer for myself, is that the Spirit of God would enlighten our hearts to an understanding of who Jesus is and to a love of this Word. Because you cannot know the Jesus who saves, who is sovereign, who is holy, and who is coming back unless you know this word. we pray for us and our band will be in. Most gracious, holy father, I love you. I praise you. Thank you for the time we can be here. I pray that this, that this time would be a blessing to all who hear it. And I ask that your word would be considered a treasure, just as the message of your word, the truth of your son, would be a treasure for us. I pray that these students here would love you, would love you the word that you've given us, and that, Father, we would seek to understand it and understand you more. And it's in your Son's name I do ask these things and for his sake, amen.